Amen. Let's open our Bibles together to Romans chapter 6. I'm going to read the first 14 verses. That'll be our text for this morning. Please listen with the appropriate attention to the, to the Word of God. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace." I'm going to pray, and as I'm doing that, Matt's going to figure out why this is ringing up here, because it's going to drive me crazy. Can you do that while I pray? Let's pray. Father, be with us by your Spirit. Fill this place with your power to understand this truth. Father, I am convinced that too many of us too often go through life acting as though we are enslaved to sin when we are not. Would you grant us the truth and then the power of this text that we might walk in greater joyful righteousness for the glory of your Son, Jesus our Lord, in whose name I pray, amen. So here's a question for you. What are the benefits of being a Christian? If you were talking to an unbeliever and they said, why should I become a Christian? 
How would you respond? What would you say to them? Well, no doubt you would hone in on the most important piece of forgiveness of sins, what we just celebrated, right? It's the, it's the heartbeat of the gospel, Christ dying for our sins and our being declared righteous because of him. That's a good place to start. What else would you say if they said, is that it? We tend to think of future things predominantly. We think of the hope of resurrection. I spent a whole sermon on it last week. The hope, remember the hope on this side, real hope, not like Chicago Cubs hope. Did you see that Rick's wearing He's in defiance. He's just begging to be mocked today. He's got a Cubs shirt on. We're not talking about that kind of hope. We're talking about real hope with, with Jesus someday being in heaven. Uh, we think of, of that place where we will no longer have trials, no longer have, have any disappointment and struggle. And we should think about all those things. And we should tell somebody, this is what we are looking forward to. This is part of being a Christian. This is why it's wonderful to be a Christian, because we're going to experience unparalleled joy and delight someday. But what if they came back to you and said, great, well, what about now? Does it do anything for you now? Is it all a future promise, a future grace? I think there are lots of benefits today for being a Christian. One is what we have right here, community, the church, the body of Christ, where we have fellowship and love for one another, where we are giving to one another, we are comforting to one another, we're building each other up. Uh, Jesus at one point says, if you abandon all of your relatives and, and your friends for my sake, you'll have many times more. He's talking about the church. When we come together as this body, as this family here, it's a tighter bond than even our blood relatives. I think that's a huge benefit for now. But there are others. We are infused with hope. That, that hope that we have, that someday it's going to be true, that drives us now. That gives us something now. We are, we are filled with joy as we think about the God who loves us and sent his son that fills us with joy. And, and on and on, those kinds of fruit of the spirit, as we call them. But there's, there's something else, and this is what we're going to focus on this morning, that I think maybe we look at too lightly and, and too little in the Christian life. And that is, in Christ, right now, today, we have the power to change. The power to be different. That is not true of our non-Christian friends. They don't have the power to truly change. Rarely does a non-Christian overcome bad habits sinful behaviors, things they would like to be different. Did a little searching this week, and all I did was enter 12-step programs. You know how many 12-step programs there are in the world? Here are a small sampling. There's Alcoholics Anonymous, Adult Children of Alcoholics, Al-Anon, Alateen, Cocaine Anonymous, Codependence Anonymous, Debtors Anonymous, Divorce Anonymous, Emotions Anonymous, Gamblers Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Neurotics Anonymous, <laughs> Overeaters Anonymous, Undereaters Anonymous, no, I made that one up, <laughs> Sex Addicts Anonymous, Workaholics Anonymous, and Families Anonymous. I'm not sure exactly what that one is all about. 
And that's just from a, a quick Googling of these kind of things. And as I tried to find these success rates, they're pretty low. The, the responses, the results are pretty varied, but none of them give an overwhelming endorsement that this works, you know, 80% of the time or something like that. The self-help industry is a $10 billion a year industry, and there are 2,000 new self-help books published every year. And then there's Oprah and Dr. Phil and Susie Orman and all these big celebrities who make millions and billions of dollars trying to help people. And yet, nobody gets helped, or very few people get helped. So that tells us a couple of things. Number one, it tells us these are not the sources for genuine change. But it does tell us something else as well. People want to be different. The people we interact with, the people that we live on the same street as or work in the cubicle next to, the people we see at Walmart, they want to be different. There are habits in their lives that they wish they could change. And sometimes the desire to change is so strong, they will spend a lot of money going from program to program to program, TV show to TV show, book after book after book, seeking desperately for some key, some ability, some source that will give them what they're looking for so they can be different and stop doing this or stop feeling that or stop experiencing such and such. They want to be different. But they can't. Ultimately, they can't change who they are. Because there's only one person who can change who they are, and that's God himself. This text is describing for us the power for real change. As Christians, we have that power. We know that power, and we're going to study it here. Now, to put this in context of what we've been looking at in Romans chapter 5, do you realize how many changes of status we've already seen? I mean, that's really what Paul's been doing through the last couple of chapters. He's been talking about changes of status. On the one hand, we were over here. I'll, I'll make this the bad side this week. People say, well, I'm always on the bad side. All right, this is going to be the bad side always. Sorry. We were declared unrighteous. That's, that was a status. We were sinners, and we were declared unrighteous. We were condemned. Now the status has changed where we are declared righteous. That's not about anything that we do. That's just God's view of us now because of Jesus. We were enemies of God, rebels. Now we are friends. We've been reconciled. That's a status. We were fighting against him. Now we have peace. That's objective peace. That's a status. You don't have to earn those things. You don't earn your justification. You don't earn your being a friend with God. You don't earn being at peace with him. Those are all objective things he has declared. This text this morning, because it talks about sin and dying to sin, you're, you're instantly going to start to think about what you do or don't do. And I want to head that off at the beginning. That is not the point of verses 1 through 11. He's not talking about what you do or don't do. 
He's not talking about your actual sin, at least not directly. He's talking about a change of status. Now, you need to know that as we go through, because as I was quizzing my wife last night, she kept going there, and I kept thinking, okay, how do I help people see this a change of status? She got it, so I'm, I'm sure you can get it, too. Not that, not that she's not... <laughs> not that she's... not what I meant. I love you. You're the smartest. You're the best looking drummer. Way better than that Joe guy. All right, I just need it. What shall we say then? Obviously, sometimes we shouldn't say anything. So, so Paul asked the question, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Now, if you're not familiar with that verse, that would seem like a very strange question. Why would anybody ever ask that question? Should we sin more so that grace can increase? What? Who would ask that? Well, put it back in its context, and it makes more sense. Back in chapter 5, verse 20, Paul said, The law came in, the law of God, the law of Moses to the Israelites, came in so that sin would increase, so that transgression would increase. God gave the law to Israel, and instead of making them more righteous, it actually provoked more sin from them. And we'll see more of this in chapter 7, but you understand how this works. As soon as God says, don't do something, we want to do it. And that's what happened. It's kind of like as soon as you go on a diet, right, that, that box of Oreos that's been there for weeks, which you've had no temptation, as soon as you decide to go on a diet... You can't stop thinking about the box Oreos and you want to eat the box Oreos. That's the kind of principle here. Sin increased when God gave the law. But, Paul says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. It's not a one-to-one proportion. Sin goes this high, grace goes this high. Sin goes this high, grace goes that high. It's like compound interest, right? So somebody's saying, wait, okay, I see how this works. The more I sin, compound interest principle, the more grace God gets to give, so I'll just sin more and more and more and more and more so God can pour out exponential grace on people. Sounds like a great plan. Paul says, is that what we're going to say to this? Is that our response? May it never be. Never, never, never. But then he doesn't give the answer we expect. We would expect him to say, because that's horrible. Why would you want to sin more? That's horrible. Sin is still sin. God hates sin. Don't ever sin. Stop sinning. You'd expect that. That's not what he says in response. Did you you notice? His answer is, how will we who died to sin still live in it? His response to the question, shall we continue to sin so the grace may increase, is you can't. It's impossible. That's what the word how implies. How is it possible for you who died in sin to continue to live in it? You cannot do it. He's talking about a change of status when he said you died to sin. Look back up at 521. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness. Those are two statuses. Okay? He says, you were born into this kingdom over here. This is still the bad side. You were born here, and sin was on the throne. Master sin was your king. And that was the status you were in. Now, you obeyed master sin willingly, and you you enjoyed it, but you were doing what you were told because you had a ruler. This is the kingdom you lived in. 
But Paul says, now you have died to that kingdom. Now you're in a different kingdom. It's a change of status. That's what he's talking about when he says, you who have died to sin. He's not talking about your actual works yet. He's saying this sin realm where master sin sat on the throne and told you what to do, you're dead. If you're dead to that king, you don't have to serve him anymore. When you go to the grave, you will not be bound to the laws of the United States of America anymore. Because you're dead. So you're thinking, what does that mean? I'm, I'm not dead. I'm alive. That's what my extremely intelligent wife kept saying to me last night is, but I'm not dead. Paul anticipates that objection. And he says in verse 3, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. Baptism unites us to Jesus and Jesus' death then becomes our death. His burial becomes our burial. Now, this whole business of baptism, and because of two mistakes that we make regarding baptism, throws a, lot, a couple of major questions here about this text. Let me, let me see if I can help you. Baptism, what is it? I'm not going to spend all morning on this. We've got a whole sermon on it, and I'd be happy to talk to you individually if you have questions. But let me give you this much. Baptism is supposed to be our expression to God that we believe the gospel. It's supposed to happen in time on the same day that we come to faith or at the same time, close to the time we come to faith. That's what's supposed to be done. That's what the Bible teaches. It's kind of like your wedding day. You're supposed to take your vows and consummate the, the marriage on your wedding day. It's all supposed to happen at the same time so that we can refer back to your wedding day and make all the assumptions that all that occurred at the same time. We get into trouble if we consummate outside the wedding day <clears throat> or if we, it would seem very weird to have the, the wedding and then later on take vows, you know, like six months later or a year later. That would seem weird. You would ask the question, well, why did you do the wedding if you didn't take vows? Sometimes people take their vows separately, and then they have a big wedding ceremony, but usually they don't call it a wedding. They call it uh, some kind of other service. They would say they actually got married on that day, and their wedding was the day they took their vows. That's how it's all supposed to work so that we can refer to those things, consummation and, and vow-taking and wedding, all together as the same event. That's how it's supposed to be with baptism. So that the day you came to faith in Christ was the day you got baptized. And so anybody could refer to your baptism and, and you would think, yeah, that's the day I, I came to faith. That's the day I got saved. But we have two mistakes in the church that skew that, that, that association. One is we baptize babies. Now, we don't hear, but people, Christians, do that. So now if, if you baptize a baby who's clearly not coming to faith... Then you've got a text like this, and you say, well, okay, so did, did baptism then unite that child to Jesus' death and burial? The answer is no, because baptism symbolizes our belief in the gospel, so that can't have been true for the baby. So now it raises questions that we, don't need, we shouldn't have to deal with if we did it the way we're supposed to. On the other hand, and this is what we're more likely to fall into, 
you come to faith, and then sometimes, six months, a year, two years, five years, later you get baptized. And that raises the other question. Well, so was I united to his death when I believed, or did I have to wait till I got in the bathtub? If we do it the way God tells us to do, it's all the same. So Paul can then write to you and say, the day you were baptized, or when you were baptized, this is what happened. You're not, you don't have this time gap in your mind. In the first century, that's what happened. You remember with the Philippi, uh, Philippian jailer? It's the middle of the night. They'd been through a crazy day, the singing and the earthquake and all the stuff, and the, and the soldier is about to take his own life because he's convinced he's going to pay for the, the, the uh, prisoners being released. And you know, 2 o'clock in the morning, and Paul stops him and says, we're all here, don't hurt yourself. And before they get food, before they do anything else, Paul baptizes them and his, whole, his family who, who believe. It happens again and again and again in the Bible. It happened when people came to faith. That's how it's supposed to be. So assume with me here that, that you did it the way it was supposed to, be, ha- supposed to happen. Your, the day you came to faith is the day that you were baptized. Okay? So with that, let's look again what he says. Verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, all of us who have come to Christ, who, who believe the gospel, when we were joined with him, we were baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So when did it happen that you died to the realm of sin, to the kingdom of sin? When you became a Christian, when you were joined to Jesus. His literal death and burial became your figurative death and burial. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father... So we, too, might walk in newness of life. That's the purpose. Jesus died literally. He came back to life literally. You died in him figuratively, and you came back to life figuratively. Well, what does that, reg- uh, what does that resurrection mean? We walk differently. Now, walk here means a lifestyle. Our behavior, our practices, we have a new life. It's not that life that was over here under this king in this kingdom. We've been raised in a new kingdom where we can walk in a new life. He goes on. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, so he says the word likeness, he's speaking metaphorically here, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. If we did one, then when he comes back to life, we're also going to receive benefits of the resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self, or literally the old man, was crucified with him. See, when we join Christ, we experience everything with Christ. You're baptized into him. It's like you're completely absorbed in Jesus. His death is your death. His burial is your burial. His resurrection is your resurrection. His crucifixion is your crucifixion. That old man was crucified with him for this purpose, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed, or literally justified, from sin. Now, other places in the Bible, the the seat of our sin is our heart. Jesus said, out of the heart comes all these sinful activities. But here Paul is focusing on our our body, but it's all the same thing. Your person, your being, the one that was born in this kingdom over here under the rule of master sin, 
that being was crucified, dead, and buried. And you've had a change of status. You're no longer a slave to master sin because you're dead. You're not a slave to anybody if you're dead. Now, Paul is using a lot of language here that has major echoes from the Exodus. All throughout chapters 4, 5, and 6, there are, there are echoes of the Exodus. In fact, through the whole book, frankly. You know the story? That you, did anybody watch the Ten Commandments last Saturday night? You know, Charlton Heston? They've really uh, made it vibrant, the color. They've, they've redone the color. It's, it's pretty impressive for, for an old film. Well, you know the story that the Israelites are enslaved to Pharaoh... And God brings the plagues on them and, and does all those horrible things. And, and he delivers them from slavery to Pharaoh. And then they go through the sea. And Pharaoh and all his people are killed. And now the, the Israelites are free from slavery to Pharaoh. And there are echoes of that here. And it's a good picture for us. We are God's people enslaved to master sin. He's Pharaoh. And God brings us through the water, there's the reference to baptism, through the waters, and now that we come through, we are free from that tyrant. But there's one significant difference. The Israelites came through the water and they were the same people as they were before. And there was always the potential for them to go back and be enslaved again. In fact, they asked for that a few times, do you remember? God got very angry with them. Because they're grumbling and complaining. It's like, yeah, we may have been treated bad back there, but at least we had decent food. For the Christian, this wrinkle, this twist comes in the story. We are freed from master sin, and we are brought to the water, but we are drowned in the water. We're dead. There's no possibility now of going back and being a slave of master sin because we are dead. We're not in that realm. It's dead to us, and we're dead to it. That's a change of status. So we're not his slaves anymore. Master sin can't tell us what to do because we're not alive to him anymore. That's the point. He goes on. Now, if we have died with Christ, and we have, we believe we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For a while, Jesus, the Son of God, he came and surrendered himself to this kingdom. Now, he never sinned, but he put himself under the reign of master sin. Again, he didn't do what master sin told him to do in the sense of sinning, but sin leads to death. That's the wages of sin. Jesus submitted himself to this kingdom, and he let the king of this kingdom put him to death, so to speak. And he did that once. Never again will he do that. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. And here's the command to us. Even so, just like that, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's how we're supposed to think of ourselves. That's how you are supposed to reflect on who you are. You no longer belong to this realm. You can't be told by master sin what to do. You are now alive in a different kingdom. That's all status. So finally, he's going to get from the status to instruction, and he says, 
Therefore, do not let sin reign. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Don't do it. You're not under his rule anymore. He has no claim on you. He has no power, no authority. You're not in his kingdom. You've died. So don't go back to him and say, hey, master, sin, would you like to use my hands? Would you like to use my mouth and my legs? Would you like to use me for your, your kingdom of sin? Paul says, don't do that. Don't do that ever again. Instead of that, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and present your members as instruments of righteousness to God for sin shall not be master over you. You're not under law. You're under grace. We'll come back and talk more about that phrase next week, Lord willing, verse 14. you got to get the status part right if you're going to give your body to God. Do you realize that this change in status is every bit as real as all the other ones? The fact that God has declared you righteous in Christ? The fact that you are now a friend of God? The fact that you now have peace with God? And the fact that you are dead to that kingdom? They are all equally absolute and certain and true. If you are a Christian right here, right now, you no longer sit in the kingdom of sin, period. It's impossible, Paul says. How can it happen? It can't. Let that get into your bloodstream. It'll change the way you live today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day. It's just as real. Why don't we live like this? Well, one reason is we let Satan deceive us into thinking we're still in this kingdom. He loves to come and say, you can't change. You're not any different than anybody else. You've done this sin so long. Just give in. Come back. Come back to Egypt. Come back over here to this kingdom. It's what you know. It's what you're comfortable with. We have better food here. And Satan fills your heart with lies, saying, you're not any different. You're not any different. That's when we say, no, I am different. I am dead to your kingdom. I died with Jesus. Now that we're no longer under master sin, capital S, sin, we can now put off sins. All of them. I told you months and months ago when we started this that I was going to come back here, and I'm going to because I'm a man of my word. Listen to me very carefully, and I mean this with all earnestness. You do not ever have to sin again. You don't have to. And I know where your mind is racing. But, 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 but. There's always a yeah, but, right? Yeah, but I will. Yeah, you probably will, and so will I. But you don't have to. Because he's not your king anymore. Every decision that is before you, every 
thought, you have the capability now of saying, I'm not going to please master sin, I'm going to please Jesus. You can stop all those sins today. I'm not teaching some kind of perfectionism and some just, you'll go through this experience and you're righteous. It's not that. I'm saying in your life, you have the power of the Holy Spirit, which he's going to get to in chapter 8. You don't have to give in to that old slave driver because you're dead to his kingdom. This is encouraging. It's also kind of convicting because that means when we choose to sin now as believers, we are intentionally leaving this new country, this new land that we've been put into, and we're walking back over here and saying, hey, master sin, I'd like to be a slave to you for a little longer. And that's doubly convicting, right? It's one thing when you're born into that nation and you really don't have a choice in one sense, but it's another thing when you've been dead there and resurrected over here and you go back. I'm not trying to say if you sin this week, which you probably will, and so will I, that you should be overwhelmed with guilt. That's not the point. The point is, every temptation that comes to you, you now have the ability to say, I won't, because sin is not my master. Jesus is my master. Grace is my master. So, what do you struggle with? What's that, what's that temptation that seems to grip a hold of you, where master sin is yelling, saying, remember this one? What is it for you? Is it anger and bitterness? Is it talking too much? Talking too little? There are some people that actually commit that sin. Is it lust? Is it apathy? Is it laziness? Is it despair? Anger, greed, jealousy? What is it that master sin tries to say to you, you, you got to do this because I'm telling you to. Whatever it is, you look it in the face and say, uh-uh, I'm dead. I died with Jesus. I've risen with Jesus, and I'm not your slave anymore. That's old news. Now, the flip side is, we don't live to ourselves. We're not supposed to have the best life now. Every day is Friday, you know, this is, and referring back to my introduction, I'm not suggesting the Christian message is, you can have it all right now, isn't this great? No, we live to God, not to ourselves. So this power to change is not to change so I can realize all my dreams, and you can realize all your dreams, and you can be happy and everything's great. That's not the message. The message is, I have been killed in this nation, this country, this kingdom. I've been resurrected over here, which is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, and now I live for him. And that means my goal and your goal is to live a self-denying, God-glorifying, Christ-obsessed life. And we have the power to do it now. Because we're dead to master sin and we're alive to God through Christ. If you want to conquer your struggle, you got to get this right. Don't listen to the temptations. They're just lies. They have no power over you. There's no sin, none, that you don't have the power right now, today, 
to stop committing. You don't need another anonymous group or any other support group. You don't need a special anything. You've already got it. If you're in Christ, you've got it. You're dead to that kingdom and alive to God. Overcome it. That's what Paul says. Stop giving yourself to him. Give yourself to God. You can. Lastly, we have the real power for real change. They don't have it out there. None of those 12-step groups are going to help people please God. Very few of them are actually going to help somebody overcome their addictions and their struggles. We have the power to change. We're going to fill this room a lot in the next few months with unbelievers. We're hoping to fill the foyer for a long time on Friday nights with unbelievers. We interact with unbelievers every single day, and a bunch of them wish they could be different than they are. They want to overcome their alcoholism, their drug addiction, their porn addiction, whatever it is. They want help. And you know what? You and I, in the gospel, we have the only message that truly can help them change. My question is, are we going to share it? Let's share it. Let's tell people how they can be free in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I, I ask that you would protect our hearts and our minds right now from the enemy who may be trying to sow doubts and discouragement. Fill us with the joy of our salvation, the joy of our forgiveness, the joy of our death and resurrection in Christ. Father, make this real to us, that we know and we believe and we walk in new life, not in not in the best life now, but in new life in Jesus Christ, putting off the old and putting on the new, the new man, the new being, the new robes of righteousness. And Father, open our mouths as we're with unbelievers, as we hear people talk about their struggle, the new group they're joining, or the new book they're reading, give us boldness to say, there is one sure way to overcome as through Christ. And I pray you would do this for the glory of your son, Jesus, and for the expansion of your kingdom in this city. I ask in Jesus' name.